1: Hello and welcome to the Mick Clifford Podcast with the Irish Examiner. Now, next week, the People Before Profit TD, Gino Kenny, will bring a private member's bill before the Dáil to legislate for assisted dying. His bill is being backed by people such as the cervical cancer campaigner Vicky Phelan. Another person in favour is Tom Kern, whose late wife, Maria Fleming, went all the way to the Supreme Court in 2013 to get legal sanction for Tom to assist her to die. That bid was unsuccessful... But the judges in the Supreme Court at the time said that there was nothing to stop the Oireachtas legislating for such a law if it thought that it was appropriate. Another person giving this bill the nod is Gayle O'Rourke, who was acquitted in the criminal courts in 2015. She was charged with attempting to assist her friend Bernadette Ford to take her own life. And as I say, she was found not guilty of that. They're the kind of people, what you might call the high profile people backing this bill, It would also seem a number of TDs are doing so. How many? We'll just have to wait and see. And I think it's fair to say that a lot of people in the general public are um, wondering about this area now, and it's coming to the fore of their conscience. Whether or not the bill succeeds, and it doesn't look likely right now, uh, it's a private member's bill, and the chances are the government will not go along with it, but we'll wait and see. But there are already laws for assisted dying in countries such as Holland, Luxembourg, Belgium, Canada and some US states. Campaigners in this jurisdiction say we need to move on it now, but there are also many who are cautious about it and there are others who are frankly dead set against it. It's a highly contentious issue, a primal issue in many ways, and it's going to take a lot of teasing out. In that respect, we're joined on the podcast today by Professor Des O'Neill of Trinity College, who's a specialist in geriatric and stroke medicine. Of course, he's also somebody who's contributed to public debate on this and other issues in his field over the years. Des, you're very welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Yes, could I start by reading out to you a letter to the editor that was published in the Irish Examiner this week? A brief letter. It was sent in by uh, Mr John Caulfield from Mormont in Cork City. And it's under the headline, Legal Consent for Assisted Dying. I'll give it a quick read, just because I think there's a flavour of some thinking that's around at the moment. Now it goes like this. Glad to see there is movement on legislating for assisted dying, but it's only a start. We need a much broader and liberal law. I'm especially thinking of older people who have more or less lived their lives, who may dread the thought of being incarcerated in an institution totally dependent on the care of others for basic bodily needs, when they may also have become confused, disorientated, agitated and aggressive. Should a person wish to avoid spending the latter months or years in such a situation, I think they should have the right to assist the dying provided they have signed the legal binding document giving that permission at least five years before the event. As if I could put it this way, the sentiment expressed in that and even the detail would hardly have made it into a newspaper 30 years ago. But I would say that it's not too far wide of some mainstream opinion at the moment. Yeah, no,
0: it's really kind of sad. This reflects the fact that um, prejudice against age and prejudice against dementia remain the last acceptable bastions of prejudice. Sadly, this shows a lack of insight of what actually happens to people as they get into later life. I've been working in the area of dementia and Alzheimer's disease now. For over 30 years, my own parents have had... Uh, dementia-type conditions, and I've had very valuable and illuminating time with them. Growing up with them, learning more about myself uh, in this time, and indeed, we've tried, particularly through the Alzheimer's Society of Ireland, I was the first medical director, is to try to increasingly emphasise that it, with life with living with dementia is a whole spectrum, and very often what we're caught with is we're caught with barriers of language and memory. With rich inside lives. For example, I'm really looking forward to uh, tomorrow, the opening of Sally Potter's new film with Javier Bardem, where that rich internal life is going on while he can't uh, express himself. So uh, I think, you know, it's this imagining of a future, it's this despairing giving up of hope, rather than providing a framework which provides for people to be supported, to be enriched. I deal with people all the time living with dementia, and I do not find this impulse that once this illness happen, people want to make the most of life as it is. So it's around an imagined uh, future, and it's around extraordinarily tolerance for prejudice against uh, dementia. Uh, Joanna Trollope, the uh, English author, has written awfully about going gaga with dementia. And Katie Hopkins, again, you, you get what you deserve if you read Katie Hopkins. <laughs> and we've got to remember ourselves that, that there are deep-felt prejudice against um, aging and against dementia. Uh, a very troubling uh, paper within the last few years around autonomous vehicles, asking the public that if an autonomous vehicle is to knock down a cat or a pensioner, which they'd go for. And unfortunately, this is one of the dangers around Vox Pop. So what I would say is that I think it is important that the medical profession, nurses, and those involved in the advocacy come out and say, no, hold on a minute. Uh, Killing people or death or suicide is not a positive, caring, supportive way. And we need to think carefully about, hold on a minute. What we're talking about is somebody ending their life. We're talking about suicide. We, We need to bring it into that framework as well And use some of our knowledge and science, but also to reassure people is
1: that those imagined futures are very different from what they had thought. Okay. And I I do take your point. And there certainly could be a lot of debate around dementia and the experience of it. And as you say, the, the fear in an imagined future. But if you're to move it slightly Des, into well, perhaps the main focus of, of, for example, the legislation that's going to be proposed to the to the doll, and that's to cater for people who are in physical pain, distress, or even permanent disability with no prospect of getting better from it. And in in that scenario, particularly when you're talking about a terminal condition that involves a lot of pain and discomfort, is there a case to be made that... People have their own choices to make based on their own beliefs and they should be free to do so. Look, I I think what's really
0: important here, first and foremost, of course, people must have autonomy and choice around particularly not wanting things. Uh, I remember the early debates with some of the advocates here, they were talking about, well, I don't want my wife to go on a ventilator. And we're going, "Well, if your wife doesn't want to go on a ventilator? She's not going to go on. So there was this imagined fear of what was going to happen. Uh, Somehow or other, objectifying or, or distancing yourself from this colossus of a medical industrial complex. So first and foremost, autonomy and choice around what you shouldn't have. But actually, I think the real concern here is, is again, prejudice against uh, life with disability. And I often uh, go back to cases of people, Simon Fitzmaurice's book, It's Not Dark Yet, mm. People Must Read, around you know actually going well wait a minute no i don't want to die prematurely i want to see my children is his wonderful chapter my willie works uh, where he you know he made a film he had children and his life could be enriched so i think there it still has this extraordinary prejudice against disability and its acceptability was extraordinarily well highlighted in the tolerance of the general public for clint eastwood's movie million-dollar baby. And the scenario at the end with Hilary Swank was, A, okay, she was disabled. She had pressure sores. So it meant she had bad care. You don't get pressure sores in good care. B, she was clearly clinically depressed. So that depression should have been treated before you had made any decisions. And C, she was in this awful environment. You can take people out. You can do things with them. So what we got was we got a killing as a response to bad care that, that was then viewed sympathetically. And what it, it feeds to this extraordinary prejudice, Mick, extraordinary around disability, um, around severe pain. Um, I think this is where hopefully our palliative care colleagues will come out. Um, one of the big figures in this area, Harvey Chachanov, has written a very important big studies of how the vast majority, vast, vast, well over 90% of people die with what they or their families say is dignity. And the other thing is around pain, by and large, this, I I, I struggle to find, I'm now 34 years in practice, I struggle to see a death where somebody has died in in intolerable pain. There is a very interesting subgroup of people where, and this was written up beautifully by some palliative care physicians in, in, um, in, in the Lancet, where they talked about history is written by survivors or the story of pain and death is written by those after. And it was around a woman who chose that she valued her clarity of mind due to whatever side effects that might have been pain relief over pain. And that was very much her choice, but her children were bitter and aggrieved around this choice. And there very often is an agenda slide. So what I would say is I would have to be, and, and, and I know talking to my colleagues here in the hospital, we do, maybe Tala Hospital's exceptional, maybe it's unusual, but I do not see people dying in, uh, in, in unmet pain and need. And the other film that here got, got huge kind of critical love was Michael Haneke's Amour about an older couple. Now, it's a fabulous film, beautifully made cinematically, but as we would see it as geriatricians, um, again, killing was seen as a response to poor care. Um the wife gets a stroke with uh, dementia out of it. He clearly doesn't have proper support from speech and language therapists, other areas. And when the last moment comes and she she says mal, mal. Now, those of you who know French will say j'ai mal aux jambes means I've got a pain in my leg. Now, she could have been saying I have an existential angst and I no longer want to continue. But she might have just been saying I've got a cramp in my leg and a pillow over her face. Is not the way to do um, a therapeutic supportive caring and communicating. And the real challenge here is letting this thinking permeate out into the community. And the most chilling example of this, going back to dementia, was uh, a recent case in the Netherlands where a woman with dementia had very much like the letter writer in Cork had said, Oh, if I get dementia at a certain level, I, I want to die. And then, as I often find and as I teach, all of my students and trainees, people with advanced stages of dementia, can still tell us what they want through gesture, through words, through taking out the drip, whatever. Anyway, they had to rest- she said that she made it clear that she didn't want to die at this stage. She had to be restrained to be euthanized. And then the whole of Dutch society rose up to defend this. And I always think so what they what they've, they've this whole scenario, Now, if this were around a sexual crime, as opposed to killing somebody with uh, a a stigmatized condition, no means no, no matter how much alcohol or drugs or whatever state you're in, for a sexual crime. And we all support that. But clearly, no means no did not hold here. And the whole of Dutch society, uh, an extraordinary um, consensual society, although It has the label of liberalism. We've always been astonished as geriatricians how keen they are for the rest of us to give them approval for what they're doing. So the impact of assisted suicide or euthanasia in the minority of legislations, jurisdictions, where it is, it's not so much often a direct one because the people who tend to take it tend to be upper middle class, late middle age, early old age, often stigmatized around later life but it's the roll-on impact it has about sending out a message to our care society, to our carers, that they're, like that life with dementia is worse than death. And that's the exact opposite of the message. It's even infected the Netherlands Alzheimer's Society. Their, their proclamation around this is just shocking in terms of not standing up for and fighting for how do we reach in through creative process, arts, music, doing the things you like doing, to get to that inner life of people with dementia, to support them instead of saying, well, actually,
1: maybe that's the way it is, and maybe you can be euthanized. Yeah. As I understand it, there's uh, in Belgium, for instance, investment in palliative care has increased way beyond general investment in health since they've brought in a euthanasia law. And in Holland, they, they statistically, I think, they record. Most cases where the law is invoked and in the vast majority, there's no question of anybody who is in a vulnerable situation having been taken advantage of in any way.
0: Well, we've just given you the case where there is. And as you can see, their whole system is now effectively rigged so that if they euthanize somebody against their will, it's going to be cleared by the Dutch Medical Society. It's going to be cleared by the Dutch Courts. And it's going to be cleared by the Dutch public and indeed the Irish Times own correspondent, you know, he had completely bought into this thing. So the answer is, I'm afraid the whole framework and paradigm of the Netherlands has been shifted. Palliative care, yes, has increased in, in, in Belgium and the Netherlands, as palliative care has increased in most places. And it's been extraordinarily divisive in uh, the jurisdictions where it's been bought in. And some deeply, deeply troubling stories of um, afterwards, it's it's not the smooth, highly regulated, wonderful thing, uh, you know, that we can all be secure. I mean, we, we know already, if you go in to get your appendix out or your hip repaired or that, there's always a chance of error. There's a chance of mistakes. There's a chance of, you know, we know that. But it, it, there's an extraordinary error of ironing all of that out because it's an appalling vista. And I think the other thing we, we don't think enough about is why are we so troubled about our high, now thankfully reducing, but still high death rate of suicide? And I think there is this bizarre artificial division of somehow or other a bad suicide and a good suicide. And there's an assumption that everybody uh, who undertakes suicide, which kills far more people than road uh, traffic crashes now, uh, somehow or other they're irrational. Absolutely not. That They've all got a significant substantive uh, mental illness. Absolutely not. And yet we know it causes a, a huge distress among families. And for them at that point, clearly, for whatever reason, life seems not worth living. And our whole process among the many charities and professionals is to try and reassure people that, that life is indeed worth living. And I think that's the message we've got to try and get out around some of these uh, highly stigmatized areas. Or, and we know this, in, in fact, for example, if you do a study among younger people and you say, I get a severe stroke you know, how many of you want to continue living? And quite a significant minority will say, I don't want to continue living. We've been running an all-ages stroke service here since 1995. Not a single self-harm, like obviously lots of hurt and pain and support. And the worst cliche of all, the worst cliche of is what older people want is quality of life, not quantity of life. Actually, that is wrong. Uh, you know, that they they want both in as much as they can. And our challenge is to find those things that make life miserable, to try and arrange to support, arrange and find therapy that brings them together. So this artificial dichotomy and even the Irish human rights body got into the extraordinary position here about putting in a plea on this, that, you know, as an act of charity and kindness, uh, we decriminalised suicide, you know, many years ago. This was not to say, well, that's because we think suicide's a good thing, but it was particularly people who had gone down the road and hadn't been successful that we weren't going to criminalise and we were going to take a health and supportive approach. So they are a very, very bizarre submission. And the other area that, that really troubles me, and I think I sent you something around this, is the strain and pressure this puts on on loved ones, second guessing them around the impulse to care, and you know. The documentary that Terry Pratchett undertook, Terry Pratchett, who again was one of these people who said, you know, I want euthanasia, but thankfully died a natural death. But the mother of the young man with multiple sclerosis who did not want to lose her son and yet trying to row in with her son wanting this, you know, and how can we get into and access this pain? So it's, it's a nihilistic, negative way of viewing life. And has an extraordinary historical precedent, if you go back just prior to the introduction of insulin, which was very much the, uh, you know, savior in diabetes, there was a significant amount of talk around of euthanasia for children with diabetes because it was, you know, quite a miserable uh, condition to have in its, in, in its later stages, pre-insulin, you know, uh, rather than thinking around, well, how can we make this better and how can we be therapeutic? So it's anti-therapeutic. It leads into prejudice, it neglects all we've learned from suicide, it undermines uh, the whole element of caring. You know, one of the worst things I I, I would say in my talks to people is not wanting to be a burden is a burden in its own right, second-guessing your family. Um, And it's all too sad that we can portray care of people, of our parents, who gave so much to us as you know, care or burden, rather than burdensome some aspects of care and caring, something that improves
1: us, uh, that, that's an important moral uh, support and development in our lives. Absolutely. And I, I think I'd say straight up, Des, I would one thing I would share, which in that respect is the whole idea that we could get to a stage where people would either feel under pressure, to do away with themselves on the basis of being a burden or that their families would, would would feel under pressure in various aspects of that as well. However, a couple of things. First of all, the suicide argument. I think people would make a very clear distinction between suicide as a, as we understand it generally and somebody who is terminally ill and in pain uh, and, and, and considerable pain, whether that be psychological or physical pain or whatever, somebody in that scenario and somebody particularly perhaps of a younger age or, or who does not suffer from a terminal condition wanting to take their own lives. And just in, in going back again to that whole thing of, of a terminal condition, you will be aware, I'm sure, of anecdotal uh, evidence to the effect of doctors, for example, attending at somebody who's heading towards the end of life, who's suffering from a severe condition that involves a lot of pain. And perhaps Administer, administering, for example, more morphine than might be safe purely on a humanitarian basis. I, I've heard of an incident like that myself, for example, a number of years ago, Nell McCafferty spoke about it. What do you think of that type of situation and the fact that it would certainly seem that some doctors purely for humanitarian reasons do exactly that? I think,
0: first of all, no, I, I think creating this artificial Chinese wall between Suicide, as we understand it, and assisted suicide is actually a fallacy. You know, life does not divide into artificial dichotomies. And people do signal in, in, in suicide in other areas in, in various forms and manners. And as I said, the assumption that they're irrational or they've got mental health actually is is simplistic and, and wrong. So I think it's around responding to the needs uh, in the first place. Um, what I would say is, look medical practice is, var- is variable and I think uh, very often where things happen, they happen when people are practicing at the edges of their scope of practice or beyond uh, their scope of practice. Uh, and certainly we've seen this uh, in some of these cases. I can put my hand in my heart and say that you can give morphine to the point where people are comfortable. They may not be responsive, but not hastening death. And this has been one of the kind of straw man arguments that are constantly put forward. And again, I think you can talk to any palliative care physician. This this is generally, I have to say, a result of inexperience practicing at the scope of your practice rather than appropriate and uh, true palliative care.
1: OK, and coming back again, and I see what you're saying about the, the, the possibilities that are open up as a result. But ultimately, you're still back to a scenario whereby you're talking about autonomy, you're talking about choice and the, in, in, I, I take your point that in, in a lot of instances, it's the imagining of that into the future. But there are those and Maria Fleming was an example of somebody who was living it, who was suffering through it and had reached a stage in her life, I think it's very fair to say it was very made, very public at the time uh, of, of, of wanting to end it. Surely somebody in that position living like that and the loved ones around them observing it are entitled to have some protection under the law to bring, as they see it, suffering to an end. No,
0: I think this is a really important issue in terms of having perhaps a wider discussion on, on what autonomy means. And I think a really important thinker here, and I think it was always illuminating to me that the UK human rights had a distinguished philosopher heading them rather than a lawyer or an activist or an autonomy person. And Honora O'Neill is somebody that people should look to. She's a wonderful TED talk on trust and a wonderful, she's a wonderful way of writing on the limitations of autonomy. All, all of our autonomy is exercised in the embrace of others and has impacts on on others, uh, both those in our immediate circle and in societal terms. So there are limitations around autonomy. And I think, you know, it's my choice, it's my right. We've seen already in society that we've said, well, actually, no, no, you can't smoke in a pub. No, you can't go out on a motorbike like in New Hampshire and uh ride a motorbike without a helmet uh seat belts uh you know there's a wide range of areas whereby we have decided that you know we've made it clear that we as a society we as as a as a government have an interest in the value of life and it's not just some of it's purely commercial but some of it is actually i think we're so used to giving out and criticizing Uh, government is that there is a virtuous core at the heart of what we do as groups. I think we've got to believe this and uh, there is an importance to attaching uh, value to life and an importance to understanding the limitations of our autonomy. So can I say to you certainly around um, burdensome or extraordinary treatment there's been massive movement in this and and people really are absolutely assured you know sometimes there are these pictures painted particularly in the us where there might be an issue around reimbursement for intensive cares and people ending up in intensive cares but 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 you are not going to be subjected to extraordinary things and if you get the right degree of palliative care you are not going to suffer from these intractable pains and i i think the knock-on effects and implications the knock-on effects around philosophy and ethos of care are, are really very, very concerning. What The first case that went legally in the Netherlands was around a doctor who euthanized an older person without consent. And the judge said, well, I know that was fair enough because uh, she was reeking of urine and she had pressure sores. And you're going, oh my God, I, you know, she had poor care. So Uh, There are massive, massive knock-on implications here for the framework of care, for our understanding of disability, for our understanding of dealing with psychological pain, for dealing with... uh, And indeed, there can be... One wonders sometimes all around psychologically depression or cognitive changes with some conditions. But we need to be respectful of these, but to realise there are points where there is a finitude to humanity. And when I'm teaching the students around this, I use, for example, the plays of Moliere might seem very abstract and abstruse, but in Moliere, all of Moliere's plays are about humans trying to set up a framework to protect themselves into the future. And the comedy Comedy. of Moliere, whether it's Tartuffe um, as trying to do it through religious um, uh, uh, sort of credits, whether it's the miser through money, whether it's the hypochondriac, the imaginaire through through embracing medicine, it all comes crashing down in the end. And I think it becomes challenging in a in a society where we're, we're coming to terms, perhaps in a post-Catholic society that's uh, pluralist, uh, not militantly secular but pluralist, is to bring together the strands that don't throw out. Um, long traditions. And Hans-Georg Gadamer, the German philosopher, spoke about the importance of tradition in some ways. Now, I know Winston Churchill talked about the downside of them when he was talking about somebody challenging them about changing something in the Royal Navy on the basis of its great traditions. And he said, yes, rum, sodomy and the lash. But um, Hans-Georg Gadamer spoke about how tradition very often had it within it unarticulated elements of wisdom that we had. And I think the the importance of us saying back to people who are in these situations is we value you where we want to find ways of dealing with your existential stress, with your psychological distress, with your, with your, your physical stress. And it's about making life better, better, better for people. And I think the interesting thing is, even though I mentioned the the USA a little while back around, you know, People talk about this very highly interventionist, you know, uh, money-driven thing. A good pal of mine, the late Donald Tresh, did a really interesting survey of nursing homes in the U.S. And very, almost nobody got resuscitated in a nursing home, even though they had the the, the abilities to do it. But people chose, no, I don't want my heart to it again around advanced care planning. So I, I think this this is very important. And it does feed into one very, very worrying part of... Um, the this issue of advanced directives.
1: When you say advanced directives, sorry, what are you referencing there?
0: A legally binding advanced directives part of this new uh, assisted decision making bill. Oh. I have two problems with these. The first problem is um, they're unremittingly about what I won't have rather than what I will have. So there I don't want resuscitation, I don't want this. And I'm going, well actually I want an advanced directive that says if I'm in a nursing home I want all the nurses and staff to have dementia appropriate training. I want, I want positive ones. But the second thing is they don't take into account how we grow with illness and how we change. And the metaphor I use is all the people who, before the uh, 2008 crash, bought into the advance directive of a mortgage. And what <laughs> happened when it went wallop? And what happened when it went wallop is we as a society, hugely altered, adapted, changed, had maneuvers. But it seems to be we've completely shut our critical blinkers to the idea that, hold on, um, she, she made this advanced directive when she was relatively well. She knew very little about it. Interestingly, older people are very smart about this. Uh, we did a study back way back in the um, in the 90s uh, asking older people how they felt about this. And they said, I only want to do this when I can smell the condition I'm going to have. And they made it clear they wanted advanced care planning or preference, i.e., a general direction rather than something binding. So, as I, I keep saying to you, Mick, the real challenge here is this huge buy in to uh, occult and overt prejudice against disability, against aging, and also um, buying into a current around intractable pain that really, and again, I, I'm, I'm in contact with palliative care physicians at the moment. I think it's important they come out relatively strong. Strongly, but honestly, I mean, they have the literature about, you know, successes and and failures, but th- this, 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 this is truly something whereby you, you talked about autonomy. Um, the, the, the leader of ethics, we've always had medical ethics to a certain extent, but there was a very, very clever doctor called Ed Pellegrino, who's very much the person who put medical ethics in uh, as a subject. He kind of framed it and he talked about, you know, people talk about doctors being paternalistic and misses it or gets it wrong. Ed Pellegrino said the good doctor is a moderate autonomist and a moderate welfareist. And the issue is people come to you hurting, they come to you not knowing stuff, they come uncertain. And your piece there is to maximize their autonomy within the framework of what you can do, but also the welfare is to support them. And I sometimes say to people, You know, when you go to your garage man and he says that carburetor needs changing, you know, where's your autonomy there? You know what I mean? And you're not going to say your garage man's been paternalistic. Okay, you might get a second opinion. Um, But we we, 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 I think there's a danger around, you know, the the hard cases make bad law argument. And even worse, the 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 fabled or mythical hard cases uh, make, make bad law. And indeed, we have to be very mindful and, and, and respectful of what they felt. That when a relative says, I don't like the way my father died, the trouble is we, we don't have the father's perspective at that time or moment. And, you know, uh, 10% of my time as a geriatrician is spent um, 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 dealing with the differing agenda and perspectives of adult children and their parents. Uh, they may love them,
1: but they have different priorities and agendas. One final thing, Des, and I know you're coming from the perspective of medical ethics. However, as you mentioned, we are in a a post-Catholic society and I'd suggest that one of the reasons there would have been a lot of resistance to anything in the area of assisted dying heretofore would have been that um, allegiance to the traditional teachings of the church and that that is disappearing And I'd suggest that as a result of that, it is inevitable that there is going to be a growing body of opinion in favour of some form of legislation for assisted dying.
0: Yeah, no, I I think not only is there is there kind of a move away from it, there's possibly even a bit of a a kick kick back or a kick against, I think. So and I think we just need to be mindful of that and watching it. Um, I think it's important that uh, very often there's a, a temptation and those who are in this area here is to do use a te- technique called label and dismiss. So as to say, if uh, you, you're coming from a Catholic perspective, and that's a dual injustice. It uh, assumes lack of independent thought among people who may have a religious attachment, and fails to recognise that a huge amount of agnostic and atheistic and uh, all other groups. Um, uh, can see that this is this is deeply uh, troubling and concerning. So I, I really appreciate the time you've given me. I, I think the medical profession may be a little shy in in this in this post Catholic area of of this area. And I also think ethics teaching took a bit of a hit in the last twenty to thirty years. And I think one of the things we're doing I've managed to pull together for the first time ever a continuous professional development module. In the College of Physicians next January about developing ethical articulacy uh, for physicians. So, look, uh, it really is important that we, we we lay out the stall here. We we accept that there are imperfections, but there are greater and worse dangers uh, from pursuing this path.
1: Professor Des thank you very much for joining us today. A very enlightening conversation, I have to say. That's it for today, folks. Thank you for listening. On the tanker engineer, JJ Vernon. Uh, you can get the Mick Clifford podcast on all the usual platforms. See you again soon. On Formative, middle school kids from New York City public schools interview a phenomenal collection of grownups. Me, like,
0: I don't know what I want to do. You don't have to have all the answers feel like a lot of people's favorite topics are like interest in their life. That is a really good answer. The podcast where the leaders of today are interviewed by leaders of tomorrow. Listen now at newyorkedge.org slash formative or wherever you get your podcasts.